Well, I want to kick off basically by saying the first thing. We're just going to go through these six things about where we are up to in the story. See, uh, Acts tells the story of the gospel moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Each stage in this is very, very deliberate. It's, it's what happens after Jesus uh, rises from the dead. Now, we start out in Jerusalem. This is the city who, you remember, used to stone the prophets who were sent to it. But now she's sending out messengers of a whole new peace treaty between God and humanity and news that it's, that it's on offer. All sin can be cancelled. All hearts can be renewed, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from. This, is, this offers for you, for anyone who is near, or even if you're a very long way away from God, says, says, um, says Jesus to them. Then it moves out from Jerusalem into the city to the Judean countryside. So that's the remaining sort of southern kingdom. And it's really the last of God's special people who simply couldn't keep faith with him. So on here, you remember that timeline, Judah, that southern branch of the maroon colour there, the ones who couldn't stay faithful to him, but it's actually moving out to the countryside there. And there's news that there is a lion of their tribe, a lion of the tribe of Judah, who has actually fulfilled the covenant, has, has been what the Jews should have been which of course is, oh, well, I shouldn't say of course, but that's what the word righteousness means. If you hear the word righteousness, it means that, yeah, I've fulfilled my obligations in the covenant so that they can actually be friends with God again. Then it moves out in this third stage out to Samaria. Now that's the capital of the north of Israel. So the, the line just above that, the, um, they do get destroyed. You can see that dotted line um, wiped out as a nation by the Assyrians, but they leave behind this mixed race bunch of mongrels. <laughs> on the outside, feeling a long way from God. And yet this message here, in, as soon as the gospel starts to go out, is that they aren't forgotten. Even the ones who, who, who were like the worst of the worst almost in the Old Testament have been scattered among the nations. God, by sending out his gospel to grab them and gather them, isn't gathering them physically back into the land again, but is gathering them to himself by sending his gospel out, saying, you can now pray to me wherever you are and I will be with you wherever you are, keeping his promise. And then finally, we get to the ends of the earth. If you think about it, we're actually going almost backwards along the track. So we're starting out in the events in Jerusalem, which is the end, that's Jesus, um, Jesus uh, coming to, to Jerusalem, going back along the track to the history of Judah and Judea, and then going back to even further to the history of Israel. And we almost actually head back to the garden, back to be with God again. But it's sort of not quite, is it? Because the garden's the centre of the earth and the, 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 the mission is supposed to go to the ends of the earth, sort of the opposite in a weird way. But what it does head back to is the purpose of the garden. Because do you remember what the gardeners were supposed to do? They were supposed to extend it, take it to the ends of the earth to rule that whole world. And now Jesus Christ, the King of the world, rules the earth by his mighty word. As his word goes out across the land, wherever people call on his name, wherever people bow the knee, repent, turn back to him, he, and he, he is the king. He is enthroned in their hearts and rules in their hearts by his word. Which incidentally is the same way God ruled even in the garden, isn't it? By his word. But now his word being in the writings that we all have in the, in, in the Bible, the recordings of all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said. 
And, and so now we, the, the, the 21st century Hobart people, uh, we're a part of that final phase to the ends of the earth. Now, Steve Fair tells me that Hobart is not the ends of the earth, but he does say that if you get to the top of the mountain, you can just see it from here if you just look carefully enough. So, so by the final chapter of Acts, which is, which is chapter 28, the gospel has made it to, to Rome, well out of Israel, and it's being preached and bearing fruit there and throughout the Roman Empire. And in one sense, we are Acts chapter 29, the next chapter of that fourth phase to the ends of the earth. So the first question is, you know, what do, what, what do we, what, how does our story link to it? Well, the setting for our story is that, that we're in the middle of that fourth phase, and it's therefore in the overlap of two ages, two periods of time. Uh, Jesus has defeated death, but dead people are still in the graves. Like He hasn't yet raised the dead to eternal life. A new life with Christ has already begun. John's gospel is so big on telling us we're, we're seated in the heavenly realms with him, uh, says Colossians. But the old order of things is, I mean, my sin is still here. And the sin of the people who hurt me is still around. That old order hasn't yet passed away. And so we live in this sort of this overlap of ages where Christians share what has happened to them. Uh, if, so if you stop and think about Christians, and uh, Christians are often known for evangelism, like the, the classic thing that you might, um, that I hear about actually when I hear, I went on the Hobart Reddit, the Hobart subreddit, and um, there was people talking about, oh, the, the, this crazy street preacher that they, that they knew from here or this place or that place. And it was, it was, it was all about their stories of the, these preachers, these evangelists, these street preachers. And in a way, that's actually really what Adam was always supposed to have done, if you think about it. You see, when Christians evangelize, when we share the message of Jesus with people who don't know it yet, we are being and bringing the true image of God to places on the planet that have never seen it before, to hearts on the planet that have never perceived the true image of God before, both by our emulation of Christ as we try and be like him as much as we possibly can, but also by the message of Christ and what he did on the cross for us. And yet this time, powered by the Holy Spirit and the, the renewing of Christ in us, like God did in the garden, Actually, those who speak the gospel speak words that bring order to chaos and bring life from death and bring into existence things that were not before and then fill those places that they've ordered with life and blessing and joy. That's what the gospel does, isn't it, as we proclaim it and as it changes communities. So what does that mean? What that means is we not only, uh, the setting is not only the overlap of the two ages, but the plot for us is actually testimony and being witnesses. We are in the age of testimony, the, the age where the gospel, the garden, the place where you would go to meet God, is being the temple is being extended across the whole earth as it was always intended to be. And this happens as eyewitnesses share their testimony of what God did to restore the relationship. Now, that's what Peter was doing in that beautiful reading from Tiffany, wasn't it? It's, in fact, it's, it's, it's often called a sermon, but in one sense, it's not really a sermon so much as a testimony, isn't it? He's just telling everyone what he saw. And he remembers what he read when he was a little kid in the, in, in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he's like, look, look, it's, it's all happened. He's just telling people what happened, what he saw, what he heard, who he saw dead, who he buried, 
who the Romans rolled a stone in front of the grave, who put guards in front of it, and then who three days later then tenderly spoke to him and forgave him for the way that he had betrayed him. This is the age of testimony for Christians. And it's this message of that victory over death that Jesus had. It happened, says Peter. The great enemy that was introduced in the garden is now defeated. And so that completes humanity's task. And so we testify. Uh, so this is, this is 1 Peter 3.15. To, to our story, um, which is the, to, to give the reason for the hope that you have. So this, this is, we, we both want to give our story, our encounter with Jesus. This is what it was like when I met Jesus. This is what happened. This is the change that happened in me. Um, Someone who's got a really clear, a really clear sort of uh, explanation of what that was like for them is, is Jared Koo. He's got a great little explanation. You ask him sometime, what was it like for you before and after you really got the gospel? Um, and, he, and he just tells you. And he's like, oh, he's not even evangelizing me. He's just telling me something that happened to him. But it was it's a very effective evangelism. And yet secondly, it's also not, it's also, uh, not just our story. It's our story about his story about Jesus' life and death and resurrection and what it has done for us. See, when John says, what am I talking about? Look, I'm just telling you the stuff that I heard, what I saw, what I looked at, what my hands have touched. I'm just telling you what happened. This life appeared. Look, we saw it. Now we're telling you what happened. We're witnessing. And we're telling you, actually, there's eternal life on offer who was with the Father and has now appeared to us. So this is... If you're thinking, hold on, how does my story fit into either the, either the Bible story but also into Hobart? Your story with God is not just your little niche of the world. It's the next chapter of history, but it's not only just the next chapter of all of history. It's also, your story is also the power that is bringing in the next chapter of history. Because as we share what has happened as we've met Christ, it's what changes the rest of the world. It's what brings people into that kingdom. It brings on the kingdom of God. And maybe, you're, maybe you feel like you're not a great evangelist, but this is, this, is, this is our task. This is our age. This is who we are. This is what we should be doing. And maybe you've got to do it a little bit like the blind man. You remember the blind man that Jesus healed and like had that sort of like quite funny little argument with the Pharisees and stuff? He was really smart, Alec. I love it. My favorite guy. And, and basically they, they, they just throw theology at him, all of the, you can, all the, they throw all the religion at him that they can. And look, he says, look, I don't know. All I know, I've never been able to see before yesterday, and now I can see. What are you going to do with that? He just tells them the truth of what happened when he met Jesus. And so, look, if that's you, and you're thinking, look, I just don't know if I've got what it takes to convert someone. Well, that's good, because you don't have what it takes to convert someone. That's not your job. What we do is we simply tell people, who is Jesus? And what happened when you met him? So we're in the age of testimony. Now, the next part, the destination. Oh, hold on, we got that right? Yes. No, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this one next. You've noticed that the story was long, right? <laughs> some people noticed that, uh, that that some of the sermons are long, and again, my apologies. Uh, but but the it's thousands of years that this story crosses over. It's generations. Like you get to the start of Matthew and he goes through the generations that have occurred and you're like, oh, that's a really long reading and a mouthful. But not just that, it's eras. It's, it's empires. And you stop and you think, look, I can't be patient for five minutes. I can't be patient for 10 seconds 
for someone whose behaviour I desire to change in my house to change before I want to force it to do so. It's a really strange thing. I, 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 I've, it, I still blows my mind. Why did God wait so long? And not just wait, why did he plan it to take so long? But it's not just that God's story is long. My story is long too. You see, I start exercising and then I'm disappointed when I'm still unfit in two weeks' time. It's like, it, it, uh, it, it's like no, I've been exercising. Where's the rewards? It's like, well, you've been a slob for five years. Where's the, like, like, you, it's going to take longer than that. And, and if I'm thinking about my sin and the ways that I'd like to change, the ways that I, the ways that I, I dishonour God in my actions or I don't do things that I ought to, it takes so long. God, you're supposed to be all-powerful and God, you're supposed to really hate sin and you're supposed to really want me to be like Jesus and yet you seem to be really dragging the chain on this changing my heart thing. Why is it taking so long? One of the things that come out of that, that, that sort of pondering is the recognition that God is sovereign, yes, and God does want these things, yes, but God is more patient with my change than I am. He's more patient with my slow rate of growth in godliness than I am. If he wanted me to right now magically be exactly like the Apostle Paul was after the Damascus Road, he could Damascus Road me. He's done it before. And yet somehow, he wants me to go through the ups and downs of life, through the hardships through trusting him in dark places, through not trusting him in dark places and then learning from that as much. And God, our God, as you see in both his story here, but also in our stories, we read it on the pages of that too, he plays a long game. And we need to learn about that. We need to recognise that. Both in being willing to let God take the time that he's going to take, in being willing to let... Uh, like, I'd like, I'd just like to be to be a good person, but God wants me to be, God wants me to trust in his good son. So being willing to be patient until God finishes the job and until then just be happy to trust his good son to forgive me rather than to be able to think of myself as good. So God plays things out long and we might need to be patient. But, but, but then it sort of, it does get a bit short too because uh, you might recall the verses that talks about the time being short there is actually going to be a limited span to our lives. And so if you're thinking, well, what do I, how should I think about my story? Is, is it long or short? Well, it's long in the sense that God's got a long game. And he's always going to get the pieces of the chessboard moved exactly where he wants them in the end. You can't stuff it up no matter what dumb decisions you make. Trust me, I've tried. I have worked really hard at making dumb decisions in my life. God, somehow or another, I'm a pastor of a church. This is a really weird thing. Maybe that's not a good idea either. But like, it, God is... God is arranged everything as he sees fit, despite my stupidity and despite my sin. So we trust in his long game. And yet we hear him say, hey, remember you are human. You're like a bit of grass. You've got a short lifespan. Uh, you, you, Ferdy thinks he's got the whole rest of his life ahead of him. But, uh, you know, there's some of us here who think, yeah, I remember thinking that. It wasn't very long ago. There's a few nods from some of them. Time's short too. And we get this one beautiful moment to live for Jesus, to lay it out there on the line, to take up our cross and be like him. All right, next one. 
Next thing about our story. Our story is purposed for joy. This is very, very un what I grew up thinking of as Christian. Right? The only people who had joy were the weird caros, and, I, and it would be nice if I could be like them, but I know that I was evangelical, so I couldn't. I wasn't allowed. And yet, you get verses like this that make me think that sometimes us evangelicals were wickedly disobedient. God delights in you, he says, if you bow the knee to his son. Zephaniah 3.17. He will take great delight in you. And you're like, oh, no, no, that means God's just being nice. He's like, no, 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 no. I will take delight in you. It doesn't mean you're good in every possible sort of objective sense if there, if, if there is an idea that there could be something objective other than God, which of course they can't. But, but God looks at the atoms in your flesh, the person that you are, and he chooses to take delight in you. He will rejoice in you. Secondly, your inclusion into God's people increases the joy of God's people. I don't know if you've ever considered this. I hope there's some people here who are, who are, who are kind of new in their Christianity or thinking about possibly becoming a Christian because I want you to understand that we don't feel this way about ourselves, but every Christian in this room like, does a massive big fist pump when they hear about someone becoming their brother or sister in the faith. Oh, gee, does it make us joyful. Now apply that to yourself as well. You might not think it, but I do a little mini fist pump inside my heart when I see you walk through the door. Every single one of you guys. And I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a great guy, but, Je- but Jesus is. His love is greater. And his people, yet despite us not being great, we do. We, we love each other. And it is a joy to be with each other. Your inclusion increases the joy of God's people. And then lastly, the third bit of joy The appropriate response to this is to rejoice. Back to Zephaniah again. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad. You're like, God, I've got depression. I'm not sure I can manage that. This is a a difficult, difficult instruction. And yet, God's willing to put it out there. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. This is what's appropriate. This is what's good. Celebrate. Set up your heart so that you can do this. Arrange your life so that this is what happens. It's a command. Of course, there's some significant depression stuff which we will talk about in great length at other times and places in our ministries and do and do one-to-one. And please come talk to me if that's you, where stuff is going to be outside of your control, particularly your emotional state. And yet, this is, this is primarily for those of you who aren't clinically diagnosed, right? I think. This is, this, is, this is for those of us who are just a bit flat and bland. Have you ever asked yourself the question, oh, am I supposed to feel bad right now about this because I did that thing? The answer is always, if you have gone to God about it, no. You are not supposed to feel bad about it. No. Once you have mourned and said, okay, this was a bad thing, and I'm going to take it to God and ask Him for His forgiveness, at that point, the response is rejoicing. At that point, the response is allowing Jesus to be the one who is sufficient to deal with your sins. Unless you think that you, know, you need to add a little bit of annoyance at yourself to pay for your sins because Jesus wasn't enough. 
Like this is not the story that we've heard. The story that we've heard is that it doesn't matter what we try, we haven't got this capacity. We need this Messiah to come. So please hear, there is no point in you feeling guilty for guilt that has been put on the shoulders of Christ. He wants the glory for that. Don't steal it. He wants you to rely on him. Don't pretend you don't need to. But it does raise the question, why do I feel guilty then, even after I said, sorry, went to God with it? If I'm so forgiven that the Bible says, why, why don't I feel this joy that Zephaniah says I should? Now I feel bad that I don't feel good. Thanks, Zephaniah. It's, it's related to God's patience that we said before. God is patient for three things. I don't have slides for this, sorry, so if you, I'll, I'll, I'll um, repeat them for you later. God is patient in transforming you, as we said before. God doesn't want to simply magic things into existence. He didn't magic heaven into existence. He went through the process that requires blood, blood sweat, and tears. Good things, as I found out last night with a Musselman, are slow cooked. And so are Christians. Our time on this earth is spent in the process of subjectively learning to grab the joy that is ours, grab the, the forgiveness that is ours. It, it's already objectively right there. God's heart towards me is already objectively of pure love. And it's my process as we go along. The slow cooking of me is to grab a hold of that and appropriate that through these circumstances of life to think, whoa, maybe he really does love me like that. So firstly, it's because God is patient in transforming you. Secondly, it's because he's actually patient in cheering for you. Because the thing is, the suffering comes before the glory. So when we go through hard times, that's our chance to walk in Jesus' footsteps, to take up our cross, to do the hard yards that will result in glory on the last day. Because the way that you, if you're a dear brother or sister who, who suffers really deeply in, in, internally in ways that we can't perceive externally, the way that you hold on to Jesus Christ through that and the fact that you do, even if you do so in a way that you'd think is a terrible way, but you've actually just held on to him, it will be honoured on the last day. And we'll all celebrate for you and with you. Thirdly, so he's, he's patient in transforming you. He's patient because he's cheering you on. And thirdly, he's, it's partly because he's patient in waiting for others to come to salvation. You see, if God decided, right, I'm going to erase all the evil right now, the problem is that there are people who I know who I'm like, but God, they, 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 st they still really don't love you at all. And they don't want you near their lives. And we would have to deal with the loss of them. And God has got more people that he wants to be gracious and merciful to. And that means that, yes, that there's some evil and darkness and some struggles in, inside of us that remains too. So please hear as you, if you are going through those dark times, that there's actually three reasons of God's patience for it. And that you don't have to get down on yourself, blame yourself, freak out about it. But God will bring all to rights on the last day. All right. Joyful. Last thing, last particular thing, we are reunited with God. God. Reunited with him in a, in, in a wedding scene. Uh, 
there's a there's this sort of beautiful thing that you think about when you think, oh, what was what would the culture have been like back in the Garden of Eden? You know, what if that had kids and stayed without sin and, and like just this awesome, perfect humans just being awesome to each other? Um, and, and then well, it was a little bit like that for a little while in the early church too, wasn't it? The, the next little couple of verses after the, the Bible reading are when everyone's all selling their stuff so that everyone else has got enough and they're taking care of each other and all having great joy in, in, in knowing that Jesus loves them and all this sort of thing. And the, the thing that God always was trying to start was not... Peter being a good boy and following the rules. What God wanted was a humanity who's a community with each other and with him. So the reuniting is not just me with God, but the reuniting is me with God and all of God's people, with, with hu- all of humanity, with all of the new humanity that God's creating by converting people's hearts to trust in Jesus. What that all means, I guess, is you don't actually have the option to not be in deep relationships with other Christians. You can only just put it off until heaven kicks it in and it'll happen anyway. And I guess that means that if you're not shaping your life to invest in deep Christian relationships, you're robbing yourself of a means of grace. If you're not shaping your life and changing your priorities in order to invest in deep Christian relationships... Remember, you're not the only Christian. So you're robbing others of a means of grace. The relationship they could be having with you. You see, the whole, we talk about this whole individualistic, oh, we shouldn't be individualistic as Christians thing. But it's not, it's not just for your benefit that we shouldn't be. It's actually for the church. It's for, your, it's for the person sitting next to you. And, and lastly, if you're not shaping your life to invest in deep Christian relationships, then... The church together, corporately, us, we are less healthy. We are less supported together because we to, it's actually us together who is Jesus' bride. What if Jesus' bride was all over the shop and life was falling apart? Well, that's what it would be if Christians were all falling apart and not connected in deep, loving, beautiful relationships. Our job is actually to bring it together. Pull it together. Like a good, like a, like a good fashion, you know, fashion consultant, right? You've got, the, you've got the shirt, you've got the pants, you've got the earrings, you've got, oh, I don't know what else you've got, but you've got things, and you've got to, you've got to just get the right colours to pull. Oh, and, and Mel will always say this, oh yes, that necklace, it just pulls everything together. Right, it just makes everything work. Okay. You are getting ready for a wedding. And it's not you individually. We are one getting ready for a wedding and us getting ourselves together, relating, loving, caring, being in... Well, we are the bride. And we don't want the bridal gown to not match the veil. And I think as well, the other thing is that if, when I'm, when I'm not investing deeply in Christian relationships, then I'm actually just having more stress and less fun as well. Robbing myself. So what are we doing? What, what, what's the, there's a few different things we've sort of gone through. I'll, I'll flick back through some of them. We started out with, the, with uh, the setting being the overlap of two ages. We are in between uh, a, 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 a gr- an old age where sin and, and the devil ruled and were trying to get us to be un- unfriends with God and a new age where a whole new life of friendship with God has opened up and all the bad is gone, but we kind of got both at the same time. That's the setting for your story of your life. The plot is actually 
testimony that has been going out and has transformed your life and God willing comes out of your life to transform others and to bring in that new age that's coming. The destination is actually the culmination of everything in the world. The destination is actually all of the goodness of the Garden of Eden, everything God had ever planned, all of his plans and purposes from Eden, all coming true at once. All the goodness. The time is both short because we've got this small patch of just moments to, 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 to play our part and to live it, and yet God is so patient in bringing about the long-term parts of it. And it's a joyful story that should bring about a joyful bunch of people. We're having a lot of fun. There's something ungodly about not having any fun as a church together. It's true. And so, as we joyfully are reunited, reconnected, investing in relationships together, the last thing we do is the very thing that Adam and Eve didn't do. And if you remember this from our, our, our second talk, the thing that we are working, the thing we try and do is we turn back to God we say sorry, turn away from our sin and back to God, trusting that he is good. In our lives, we undo the lie. We undo the lie that God is not actually good, both, both, both in, in two different ways. We, we actually do it in, in a passive way and an active way. It's kind of interesting. So passively, we trust God by letting him sort out the things that are his responsibilities rather than me trying to actually make everything how I think it ought to be, particularly I trust that he will forgive my sin and that it's okay for me to be a forgiven sinner, that I don't have to yet be a saint, that I keep going to him and let him be the boss, let him be the hero of my story and let me be the pathetic rescued one who had no hope. So passively, I go to Jesus asking him to be everything, recognising that I have nothing. And actively, as I trust that he is good, I will... I will I will desperately want to do whatever he says because he's good. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. And I know his words are good, so I'll trust them. That's it. That's our story as far as I can see it. Um, there's one little thing I just want to finish with at the end. Um, because the, the, I think it is almost by definition the hardest thing to trust in the world because it's the great lie that undid the world, that God is not good. And so we often have doubts against the story that God is good. We'll have doubts about it. We'll have doubts that God really loves me. We might have doubts that God's really, his instructions are actually good and think, no, that does, really doesn't matter. I don't have to do it today. I'll have doubts that God's actually got a good future in my mind, planned for me in his mind. There might be lots of doubts that we have about God and about us. The what I want to do now is just bring to bear the last 10 weeks to say, if you have doubts about those things, don't bring individual verses against them. Okay, they're kind of good, but they're like pistol shots, right? They're, 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 you, you sort of read it, and, you're, and even as you read the little verse that tells you, you're like, gee, I'm hanging a lot off one little verse when I could kind of, if I read it this way, it might not even mean that exactly. You can read a verse that says, God, that says God loves you and think, oh, that just means God's so nice he puts up with me. He really doesn't actually love me. But you can't read the sweep of the story of the Bible and of what God went through for humanity and think that that's true. Oh, he's just being nice. He doesn't really care. You've got to pick up the story, the whole thing. 
Think up what's happened. Think up the, the amount of patience. You can't absorb the depths and heights and lengths that God went to in order to have you, in order to have us at His side and in His confidences and, and on His team and working with Him and as His bride. As His bride. And think, oh no, God's just being nice to me because He wants to be a good guy, wants to do the right thing. No. And so when your doubts push you away, when, 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 when the lie comes in and says, God's not good or God doesn't care about me or I'm not a part of this or what, I don't matter that much or God's instructions don't matter that much or changing my life to live like what God says don't, won't make anything better, don't apply the, the one little verse. Feel the, feel the massive weight of the story of His sheer goodness and patience over generations and love for the humans, love for you and determination that the gospel even got to you, which it did. See, when your thoughts come after this series, you can fight them not just with one-off verses, but with the massive weight of his action throughout history. Because that story tells the truth. The truth that undoes the lie and brings us all back together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the goodness of being with you. Father, we thank you for telling us what you've done, for giving us this, this Old Testament story so we can see the, 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 the size of your love, we can see the, the, the depth of your patience, we can see the ridiculousness of your grace time after time after time after time and not turn it back against ourselves in some sort of self-pitying attack that actually just causes us to be more focused on us and us and us and us and us, but actually to look up at you and to see your goodness and your love and to take joy in that. Father, please banish our fears. Give us each other the, other, the other members of your bride in the dark nights of the soul, so that together, Lord, we might be one united people for you, that that might be our story, and that as we meet our friends and family who don't yet know you, that we just be able to tell them, hey, well, this is Jesus' story, and... This is the difference that he's made to me. Father, please, we pray that you'd give us the, the ability to, to, to share that. And Lord, that that might bring more people into the new age and bring the new age sooner. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.